0: This podcast is sponsored by Canoe Club. Canoe Club has been one of my favorite retailers for such a long time, so it's a real honor to have them sponsoring the pod. If you're unfamiliar with Canoe Club, it's a retailer based out of Boulder, Colorado, that carries brands such as Engineer Garments, VisVim, Capital, Nanamika, Levi's, Orslo, Friends of the Pod, Marnie, Solomon, and Popeye Magazine, and so much more. They have such an incredible assortment, ranging from under-the-radar emerging brands, To beloved heritage brands. I had the founder of Canoe Club, Timothy Grendel, on the podcast, which I'll have linked in the description if you're interested in learning more about the retailer. I'll also be showcasing some of my favorite pieces on the Fashion Collective Instagram as well as in the weekly newsletter. The team over at Canoe Club has been very kind to offer a 15% discount code for all the Fashion Collective podcast listeners. Use code FashionCollective15 to get 15% off your next order. Again, it Collective FashionCollective15 to get 15% off your next order. The link to the site will be linked in the description for you guys to head over and check out the assortment. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Fashion Collective. Slash fashion collective. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, before we get into everything, do you want to share just a little bit about yourself and you know, what you do?
1: Sure. I'm W. David Marks. I'm the author of two books, uh, Amatora, How Japan Saved American Style, and uh, Status and Culture, which came out last year, which is a more... Um, kind of guide to how I think culture works and the sense of why individuals are motivated to pick up specific arbitrary actions and how things in our culture get valued and uh, trying to figure that out from status mechanics of how people interact in hierarchies. Uh, And uh, I I live in Tokyo, Japan. I've been here about 20 years and uh, I'm just very interested in... uh, Fashion in the broadest sense. So not just fashion as in designed apparel, but also why things come in and out of style, uh, why things, you know, pick up value and then lose the value and and where that comes from. because uh, in college, I kind of discovered all of these things and felt like there weren't particularly great answers for it. And um, you know, because it's such a weird part of human life, we have very strange, uh, not very compelling answers for it quite a lot of the time and so i've just spent a long time thinking about what are the mechanisms in which uh these fashions happen why you know certain colors become popular and then lose their popularity or certain dog breeds etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, yeah i'm happy to talk about any of that and living in japan and um you know the specific case studies that i've looked at uh, especially with with amatora which is a history of Japanese fashion, you know, menswear, mostly from the 1960s onward.
0: I guess we can jump right into it, you know, just to learn a bit more about your history. Have you always been interested in writing? Have you always wanted to be an author?
1: Yeah, absolutely not. And um, when I was a kid, I was more of like a math science geek and um, never was very good at English composition. I don't think I was a very good reader of books until probably after college, Um, I just kind of pushed through with, you know, the things I had to read in college. Um, And it wasn't until after college, I started really reading for pleasure and getting deeper into things. And with writing too, you know, I was surrounded in college by a lot of people who wanted to be writers and I wanted to be a comedy writer, which I thought was not particularly related to being a great uh, prose worker. Um, or a great poet or something. And so I wasn't particularly interested in being a literary writer and I wasn't necessarily necessarily that interested in being a journalist, but I started to discover a lot of things in Japan. So I I was studying Japanese and spent a summer in Japan in um, for the second time in 1998 and I was in Tokyo and I discovered Japanese street culture and more generally that Japan seemed to have this, edge on the United States in terms of trends, the things were happening there first and then coming to the United States, which really countered everything that I had been told in the 1990s, because growing up in the 90s, you had this sense that America was on top of the world, that the Cold War ended because Russians and people in Eastern Europe wanted Levi's jeans and to listen to Michael Jackson. And so, you know, America was cool and everyone where everyone where else wasn't. Europe maybe has this kind of old, elegant, chic, but real, you know, youth culture is all about the United States. And then when I went to Japan, it was like, wow, people in Japan are so well-dressed and, you know, all of this culture is so much stronger there. Um, you know, another small example was just analog records turntables all of that was really struggling to come back in the United States and then in Japan you would just walk into a random department store or mall and they would have techniques 1200s and you know mixers just laid out for people to buy and you know normal people were buying them and so uh, I got back and I started to want to explain that and try to figure it out and tell people about it. and I think from there that's where I started wanting to write. So it, you know rather than I want to be a writer and then trying to figure out what to write, it was the opposite, which is I want to write about these things and think about these things and you know tell people about them and I'll have to be a better writer in order to figure that out. so um you know from there I just I worked for a magazine after college called Tokion that was a Japanese English bilingual street culture magazine and I got some opportunities to write some articles there. And then I blogged, you know, throughout my 20s, uh, which just gave me the discipline of writing every single day about all these different topics and getting feedback from people. At that time, people really passionate commenters, which was helpful. And uh, you know, writing for nylon and uh different publications like that uh for the US, uh GQ I did a couple of pieces for in you know in my twenties, and then I uh you know, at some point, 2010 or 11, realized I needed to write a book and wanted to do a history of Japanese fashion, but didn't quite know how to do it. And then, when Take Ivy, the the Japanese photo book from 1965, got an English reprint in the United States and had done really well, I had ended up meeting the authors in Japan of that book and realized that oh, you know, there's a whole backstory here that Americans aren't getting. I could do that as a book and. That kind of started me on to writing Amatora. And then, you know, once I'd written that, I realized that, you know, books are probably the right medium for me. I I really like being able to tell a long story and a long narrative and put things together in a way people can go back to. And so at this point, you know, more than short essays or um, magazine work, I really enjoyed the the act of writing books
0: and um, want to continue that in the future. So you moved to Tokyo in 2003 and have been living there since. You know, how has Japan changed in your eyes in the last two decades? And, you know, what has kept you there?
1: At the very beginning, you know, when I came in 1998, what was interesting about Japan is it felt incredibly cutting edge that it was the future. And it was the future when the world was very analog. And with the rise of the internet and with the rise of digital culture, Japan started to not really ride that wave. It's never been a particularly computer-oriented society, and so I, mean, I can tell you the exact moment I think things started changing, which is the rise of the iPod. So you know, before the iPod, basically Sony dominates the music portable music player market, you know, with mini discs or with tape players or, or discman. Whatever it is. And then with the iPod, it wasn't just that the iPod used MP3s, which the Japanese music industry was very against, but it was also that you had to have a computer to hook it up to, you know, at least at the very beginning. And so, you know, because Americans were all computer oriented in their technology, you know, that really made Japan, sorry, it made the United States start leaping forward and creating all these devices that were more or less internet-enabled devices. And the Japanese manufacturers really resisted this and fell behind, and then it took a long time for the internet to catch on in Japan. It existed, but it just wasn't central to people's lives the way it was in the U.S. And so, you know, in the time I was there, at the very beginning, there was this sense of Japanese decline, that, you know, that technological influence was gone. Youth culture, which had been so vibrant in the 1990s, started to decline because the number of young people started going down the number of the amount of consumer spending started going down so in the 80s you had kids you know buying come to Garcons suits and things and suddenly now they're just buying uniqlo because they can't really afford it so i was very worried that the things that made japan interesting would fade and in some ways they did and and uh harajuku no these fashion areas did start to lose a little energy and stores that i love started to close and i, I worried about this What really changed in the last decade is, number one, the rise of tourism from Asia basically brought all those consumers back to Tokyo. So all these brands that were at risk of falling apart or all these stores that, hey, I don't know if you can sustain this giant luxury store on Motsando. Suddenly you have all these people from Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, China coming in and buying so much product that it really, uh, you know, bolstered this consumer economy. And so that was a the huge difference. And with that, the city has really internationalized. So Tokyo is just so much more of a easily navigatable city uh, than ever before. And so that only creates more tourism. And I think more people are moving here as a international hub where when I moved here, you know, I spoke Japanese and you kind of had to speak Japanese to have a particularly deep time here, but I don't think that's true anymore. It's I think it's become much more of a place where you can just show up and um, meet a bunch of international people and kind of live that life. And the people who are moving here also aren't just English teachers and bankers, uh, but also a lot of people in creative fields. So uh, it's, it is a very much a different city. And then when it comes to just comparing it to like a New York or a London or something, you know, it's so dirt cheap. It was very expensive 20 years ago. And now it's about half the price, I would say, uh, compared to living in New York or living in other places. And yet the quality of life is probably double or triple. Um, it's just a very nice place to live for very little. And that's, that's a very big change. And so um, I think Tokyo has not been maybe as dynamic as other places in the last uh, 20 years. You know, sh- Shanghai or Seoul, to me, feel like more dynamic cities with a lot more new things going on. But Tokyo is great because it is kind of settled into being the center for craftsmanship and very high quality. It's very hard to have a bad meal. It's very hard to have a bad cup of coffee. And so the focus is much more on slowness uh, rather than speed. And you know, I think some of that is you know me getting old. I appreciate that. But um, you know, what, what I like about Japan is very different than what I liked about it 20
0: years ago. The interest in Japanese clothing, fashion, style has only increased over the last few years. If you had to pinpoint the reasoning behind that, you know, what would you say is the main reason why interest in Japanese style has only grown? Yeah, so in 98, when I discovered
1: Japanese fashion, you know, in college, you know, first of all, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. and the South is not particularly a a stylish place. I mean, in some ways, preppy fashion and and dressing up had remained strong while the rest of the country kind of uh, fell apart. So I was very attuned to clothing, but I didn't think of that as fashion. And I didn't see fashion as part of my life. And then I went to Japan and realized that all these normal kids, and especially men, were very interested in fashion. And, And streetwear really helped with that, you know. So you could wear a t-shirt and jeans and sneakers and it could be the right pair of sneakers or or jeans or t-shirt. And, uh, you know, suddenly you're stylish. So I got into that and came back and realized there was kind of this burgeoning streetwear scene in the U S you know, Supreme at that point, you would go into the store and you just walk inside and you buy something, you know, the t-shirt was, I think, $25. And it wasn't what it is today. It hadn't really developed that much, but more or less the general sense was that people were not interested in fashion i think in the united states you know everyone was anti-fashion and that just wasn't true in japan you know fashion had become a very solid part of youth culture and more than even music or some other things that you know kids care about in the us people were just obsessed with with clothing and so America wasn't into it. And then I think, you know, hip hop at that point too, which was starting to dominate uh, culture was very into these big fits that weren't necessarily tied to high-end fashion brands. And then you got the rise of, you know, um, I guess FUBU or, um, you know, uh, Puff Daddy's brands, Sean John and, you know, all that. But, you know, those were kind of their own set of, of brands. And then really, the I think the big thing that changed was that Pharrell had come to Japan in 2002, met Nigo from A Bathing Ape, and he helped bring Bathing Ape to New York. And suddenly that became the biggest hip hop brand. And so now you have hip hop merging with Japanese fashion making it, a, you know, a globally recognized thing. And from there, you got kind of two directions. You get one, the hip hop direction, hip hop slims down, gets more into fashion. Kanye, you know, gets deep into the luxury brands, goes to Paris, all of that happens. So hip hop gets pulled into, you know, being obsessed with these big fashion brands and everybody is is now paying attention to that. And the same time you have a rise of this menswear movement in the U.S., uh, where people are trying to dress up for the first time, you know, in the late 2000s. And a lot of the Japanese brands are just perfect for what guys want, which is they want traditional heritage-minded clothing that is high quality and has a little bit of a edge or a little bit of cachet without being flamboyant. And so all of those Japanese brands uh, start getting big with that. And, you know, now we live in a world, I just wrote an afterword for a new version of Amatora, and it's kind of like Japanese fashion isn't necessarily its own niche or genre it's kind of just integrated in with the whole fashion global fashion movement and is seen as just you know the superior brands so now we live in a world where michelle obama wears sakai and uh billy eilish wears capital on the red carpet and so all these brands that were incredibly obscure 10 years ago are just you know you know sold in a bunch of places around the world and you know, worn by celebrities etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know, it was a very slow movement um, or slow kind of momentum building over the last uh, 20 years. But now, you know, it, it is quite incredible. And, and you know, Amatora, the book that I wrote, I think when it came out, I really worried that I was writing about the peak of something, you know. So Japan is, yes, Japanese brands, people care about it now, but maybe they won't care about it a year after I published this. And, you know, the book has succeeded only because people became, became much more interested in these Japanese brands and wanted to know the backstory. And so, um, you know, that was, that was early, the book came out with kind of the early uh, rise of these brands rather than the end. But I, I couldn't have predicted that at the time. I think that the momentum has been sucked out a little bit from Japanese fashion in the sense that there are not the same number of young new brands that there used to be. And so when you come to Japan you think about what, what are you going to, sh- you know, where are you going to shop? what are you going to look at? You're probably going to go to come to Carson. You're going to go to beams and you're going to go to United arrows and you're going to go to human made or, um, VizVim. you know, you're just going to hit all of these really well-established, established brands. Are there a group of new brands that are competing in that space to that, you know, degree? No. I mean, there's probably some that people are excited about, but, um, I mean, the other thing that's interesting is often I get told by Americans kind of what these are the cool Japanese brands, and I don't even know them because they're not that big in Japan. And so um, it's become a kind of strange situation where things are so globalized. I don't think that there is a unknown phenomenon or trend going on in Japan that you're not seeing. And in general, things are very stabilized and in some kind of equilibrium where You know what the big brands are. And, you know, at least my shopping habits, I just tend to go and go to the stores that I know and and pick up items that are slightly different than the items I I already wear. So I'm not a great judge of this, but the thing is the market is so big. There are so many designers. There's always something cool to discover. And so um, there's no question about if you want to put in the time to look for things, will there be things? Absolutely. But it's hard to tell you these are the two or three hot new brands the way that in, you know, when I came in 1998, it was bathing ape was the hot brand. You had to wait three hours to get into the store. And then when I came in 2000, I was told, no, now it's Supreme and Silas are the hot brands. Everybody's waiting for When I came in 2003, it was, you know, balance or, or whatever is the hot brand. So uh, that moment of, you know, these are the hot brands. I think that's kind of ended. And now it's just, you know, uh, people will pick up come to Garcon for this thing and then they'll, they'll go and get the beams j crew collaboration for this thing or or whatever it is I mean I would I'm just start to interrupt but I think with yeah. come to Garcon it's a perfect example which is when I was in college I would go up to New York to see the come to Garcon store and you know first I've it was almost difficult to go inside because like obviously I'm just like a poor student don't. I'm, I'm not going to be spending money. I'm not their target audience. You know, you very much felt like no one wanted you there and you should leave as quickly as possible. But also the clothing itself was so much that you had to, in some ways, only wear come to Garçon. Uh, you had to put it all together because it just didn't work with anything else. And now, you know, that brand has so many different collaborations and um, the whole play line obviously makes it accessible to basically everybody. And so... Not not only has the store opened up to kind of being for everyone, uh, but also the way we wear clothes makes it so you can just wear one jacket or one pair of pants or something from Comme des Garçons. So, you know that that has very much changed in the last you know twenty years, which is that even the brands that were kind of running their own bizarre little world only for the small cult of people now are integrated in the whole you know, fashion system and can be worn even by people who are, you know,
0: casual clothes wearers. Now shifting the conversation to your most current work, status and culture, you know, what initially got you interested in learning more about this relationship between status and and culture?
1: Yeah, I think it came from two places. The first was, I'm interested in culture. I'm interested in culture. And when you think about that what do you know what frustrated me is if i say i'm interested in astronomy i know what i'm describing it's like there's stars there's planets there's ways to measure those things you can do this as an academic field if you're interested in culture you're kind of directed into oh you can do anthropology which is you do field work and see how people feel about the you know things that they do and try to explain why from that you know individual perspective you can do Cultural studies, which often is like literary theory, there's a lot of kind of psychoanalysis of why things happen over time. And I got really interested. uh, I took a class in college that was about the social underpinnings of taste, and more or less it was trying to figure out are there reasons people have certain tastes that are related to their social position? And from there, I kind of started learning about cultural forms and you know cultural practices change over time for reasons internal to those things not because the zeitgeists zeitgeist changes so you know a very clear example is you can look at hippies and say they grew their hair out as a protest against 1950s conformity. everyone had short hair so they grew out long hair, which is this rebellious thing and long hair represents freedom and so people wanted freedom so they grew their hair long and those, Explanations make a lot of sense, but also there's just these internal factors, which is if you're going to rebel or be different than your parents and your parents have short hair, you can go in two directions. You can have even shorter hair, you can have a buzz cut, or you can have long hair. And once people had slightly longer hair, then it also encourages people to have even longer hair. So the directions of the trends and the way they can change in some ways is set up by the system itself. And so these are kind of structural reasons why trends change rather than, you know, just people are inspired by this, you know, equalizing psychology that shows up because of the economy or whatever it is. And so, you know, thinking about that, I started trying to figure out what are these rules? What are the physics of cultural change? And in doing so, I kept hitting this idea of status, which is that people want to rise up in hierarchies if they're in a hierarchy they want a higher position and they are scared of falling to a lower position and therefore uh, that determines the direction of their imitation and based off this alone I started kind of putting things together and in I needed to write a chapter about status in the sense of, you know, how does status work. And I thought I would just go find the one book about status. And I ended up realizing there wasn't a very good book about the mechanisms of status that put it all in one book. And so I put together something kind of thinking about this is how it must work. And my agent and publisher were much more interested in doing a book about status and culture rather than culture and status. And so, you know, that that gave me the framing for starting to think about these things. But, you know, ultimately, the book tries to think about every single convention, which is in in the convention. I mean, in a really technical term, it is the atomic unit of culture, everything you do that you you say this is a cultural trend or this is a cultural thing that is happening. So that could be trap music. So trap music has a certain set of instruments that it uses and certain kind of implicit rules of what is trapped and what is not. And so these conventions pop out of certain situations, and then they're valued in different ways because of the social status of the people that do them. And just with this insight alone, the book tries to explain individual tastes and why groups start fighting each other and making their own conventions. And so therefore, you have class differences, like you said, with Quiet luxury of old money and brash, bold luxury of new money. Uh, why upper middle class people are obsessed with good taste uh, based on information and not money. Why people who g- generally have low incomes or lack access to capital tend to also f- want flashy outfits uh, rather than muted ones. You know, so all of these things come out of that. St- these status battles. Same with subcultures, that the subcultures we celebrate like Teddy boys and punks and rude boys, you know, these are all things that came out of people, especially young men, feeling excluded from uh, the status ladder and creating their own styles as protests. And then these how these get kind of sucked back into the system is an interesting process that also has a lot to do with with, uh, status. Art is, you know, people are rewarded for bending convention. And that to me is an interesting uh, thing too, is like, why do some idiosyncratic changes in these conventions about the way we do art or visual or music? Why are they seen as genius and other ones not? And how do they kind of diffuse through the system? And then also think about fashion that you really can't understand fashion cycles and, and, and luxury goods unless you understand their status implications. And then the way we remember history because you know so much of our culture is traditions and customs and things from the past retro these are all things that uh that stick in the culture because of status so i felt like in one book i could kind of explain most of what's going on in culture through this status angle i think you know you, there's a lot of things in culture that aren't necessarily status but uh, it explains quite a lot. And then thinking about the 21st century, why does 21st century feel so stagnant and weightless and valueless? And thinking about, from a status perspective, everything that, the way that status really imbued fashions with with uh, cachet and with cultural value in the 20th century, the internet really uh, it defeats those and makes it much more difficult. So Uh, the last chapter kind of deals with how the internet has changed things. And so, uh, you know, it's, the book is not a story the way Amator is. And I think people, to be frank, like Amator a lot more as a book, because it's just a fun story, even if you're not interested in the content. But as anyone interested in fashion and all of that, uh, I really recommend it just because you can read one book and kind of get most of what you need to know in about 250 pages. And some of it's dense and some of it may be a little difficult. And I apologize and could have written it more, probably a little more fun than I did. But uh, it just puts it all together in one book in a way that I didn't think existed already.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, you know, how has social media and our online behavior impacted the way we conceptualize status and culture in modern society?
1: One of the very strange critiques of the book was that this is a 20th century book and that status doesn't work this way anymore. And it, you know, a lot of that depends on how you define status and, and there's other books about status and we all define it differently. And it's pretty annoying to readers, I'm sure. But one of the ways I'm talking about it is just that people have a position in a hierarchy and that has not changed. And in some ways, Instagram in particular really makes it very clear where you are on a hierarchy because of the user counts. You know how many people you, who follow you. You know the influence of the things that you do. You know the value or the you know, importance of the people who follow you. So maybe you only have a thousand followers, but they're all people who have a million followers. But you know these numbers really make it clear. And they also bring us all onto the same hierarchy. So there aren't, you know four different Instagrams and ones for high fashion people and ones for normal people. you know almost everybody's on the same platform. And so there is this global hierarchy of hierarchies that we're all on, and it has pushed us to all look at each other's behavior and judge it uh, by the same standards. And so there's been this great unifying. and there's also quite a lot of globalization that's happened to these platforms which is that before if you lived in mongolia and you wanted to show off how much money you had you had to literally leave mongolia and go to another city and and show off and you would probably not quite understand how to show off your money in london but now with the internet and with instagram you know perfectly how you should behave because you've seen other rich people and you can show up and uh know you don't have to go to london you can just put photos on this app and and uh, reveal your status to other people that way and so i think the internet has made status actually much more uh, you know clearer the way that these mechanisms work i think this is a bigger problem for the 21st century even than the 20th 20th century despite the fact that people feel like the 50s was kind of the peak of worrying about status Uh, And maybe it was because everyone was was middle class and trying to keep up. Um, But now everyone is obsessed with rich people culture in a way that I don't think was true in the past, because you feel like you yourself have to attain it. You're on the same platforms as these rich people, and you're trying to imitate at least a a sliver of their behavior. And uh, it's it's quite distorting to the culture that we knew. And I think that in particular, it really focuses on money in a way where. Before this, people were competing, especially, you know, upper middle class, professional class, people were competing on information or I, uh, you know, I know this cool restaurant and you don't, or I know the best wine to drink. I think a lot of that has been washed out because the internet, you know, equalizes all of that knowledge. And now everything's just about money. And so conspicuous consumption is is very much what's going on. I think the quiet luxury. Story is in some ways trying to get out of the conspicuous consumption moment that we're in. It's trying to say, "Oh, there's actually another way to do this." Uh, and very, very wealthy people are trying to gravitate towards quiet luxury because they're trying to not look the same as everyone else. Uh, and so, these fashion mechanisms are just classic fashion mechanisms. And the internet changes the, you know, how would you say this? The the equations are the same, but, you know, some of the parameters of the equation have changed because of the Internet. But the underlying human behaviors of the people seek status and they need to mark their status, those two things have not changed at all. And you can explain, I think, a lot of what's going on in culture by just understanding those two things.
0: Yeah, I love getting that insight. You know, what did you learn from your first go around with Amatora? that you could put towards status and culture, anything that you learned, anything that you adjusted when writing status and culture?
1: Yeah, with Amatora, I read it pretty quickly. It was about, you know, 14 months of researching and writing more or less. And with that, I basically just had to get the story. So I would go to the Japanese National Diet Library and find the the right books or the right magazine articles about you know, say the birth of genes in Japan and read that and synthesize that with some other materials I found and just try to get, you know, the most accurate version of the story and the most interesting one. With status and culture, you know, it took me about seven years in total to read, write and work on it. It was about 18 months of signing the contract and really, you know, specifically working on here's here's the book. But before that, I just read a ton. And I set out to say, I'm going to read every single major work about how culture works and try to synthesize all of them. And so what I I have this very clear system where when I read a book, I use a pencil to say, this is the quote I want to take out. I use on my phone, Google Lens, which has a uh, optical character recognition thing. So you can actually copy paste from a photo of the text. I then put that in a note taking app. Copy that later to a doc, organize all those notes, and then throw it all in an outline so that I have this outline of I'm probably going to talk about, let's say, uh, artistic innovation. Uh, so here's a quote about artistic innovation. I'll throw it in there. And so I, these outline documents ended up, I think, alone being like 500 pages or something of just notes that I could go to. And then as I went into write, I already had all the sources and the ideas and everything there. And then I would just kind of add and try to find examples. The other thing is just always finding as many case study examples as possible from as many books. So I would read the theory books, and then I would try to read some memoir from the fifties or something where people talk about, you know, certain achievements or whatever they're up to. And then you would find some great example of someone talking about status. And so uh, it was, it was absolutely the most difficult thing I've ever written because you're you you know you're talking about culture and you're talking about status and it's these are things that are in conversation with each other. They're a loop. It's like a three-dimensional model. And with any book, it's linear. That you have to start from point A and get to point Z. And so it's trying to figure out how do you take the model and dissemble it so that you are explaining A, which explains B, which explains C. And it's really, really difficult. And it took me a long time to figure out what is the right order? What is, you know, how are you explaining things? What do you need to keep in? What do you take out? So uh, it was really hard. And, uh, you know, people should probably write less ambitious books just because it's a lot easier uh, to just stay focused on one thing. But I I really believe that it would be useful to have a book that just tackled all these things and, and and showed the way they're linked. And you know, some of the criticism has been, well, this, you know, Pierre Bourdieu already already said this, so why do you have to repeat it? But you know, first of all, reading Bourdieu is even more difficult, and he'll just talk about one specific narrow point of it. But uh the idea is: can you take Thorstein Babouin and Bourdieu and Um, all these different authors who have written about this over time and show the common thread between them to show that they're all describing the same human mechanisms. And that was really the goal. But, you know, to be able to do that, it's really just, you have, I had to read a lot. And so I think the book ended up being 620 sources um, and about 1260 footnotes. And so, uh, you know, that That amount was required. And, you know, I've probably read 10 books since I published the book that I said, oh, I wish I had had this because I would have, that would have given me more insight into this particular idea or whatever. It's kind of an endless process, but at some point you have to stop. So, um, you know, for my next book, I either want to go much more simple with some kind of theoretical topic or a really linear story because those are much easier to write. But um, that was, that definitely maximized. uh, And my advice to anyone who wants to write. A book is just too heavily outline because these books are not like painting a painting. They're like building a building. And so you have to be an architect. You have to have schematics. You have to work on the first floor before you get to the second floor, et cetera, et cetera. And so I always think about this as a very, very structured pro- process. And uh, that that is the only way it's possible because, you know, you're having to build this thing that's is so long and someone is going to consume kind of together and you have to keep reminding them why you're talking about a certain thing and you have to just make it all structurally work in order to work at all.
0: You know, looking to the future, have you started to brainstorm any new ideas for your upcoming novels? Yeah, yeah, one of the things that emerged at the end of Status and Culture was that
1: our view of aesthetics, you know, what we find beautiful and not, was is very much formed in, in status. And there has been a lot of writing recently from evolutionary psychologists saying that beauty in some ways is ingrained in us and we find the same things beautiful because of some evolutionary reason from you know a million years ago. And that's, I think, a very frustrating argument because obviously there's social influence on that. And so I'm interested in thinking about aesthetics and where aesthetics come from It is very difficult. I'm reading a lot about aesthetics and it's just a very difficult field because it's obviously so uh, difficult to explain and to just precisely say, this is why we find X beautiful or not. And people have been trying to do this for thousands of years to say, oh, we find symmetry beautiful. Actually, we find asymmetry beautiful or whatever. No one agrees. Uh, And that's different than let's say math or chemistry where you really have this kind of progressive sense of you figure out x and then you can figure out the next thing and and from there uh so it's a difficult topic and and i'm definitely going to write this at some point and have outlined it and reading a bunch towards just thinking about aesthetics uh but then recently i came up with another idea for something that emerged and so i you know there's the there's the business part of this which is you have to sell the book to a publisher and so now i'm in the process of just trying to figure out I have two or three ideas for books. I want to write all of them, but what's the right order? And, you know, where do you sell them? And where do you get the most money for? And what's, what's the best for my career, et cetera.
0: Interesting. So would you want to look at aesthetics from a very broad standpoint or through the lens of fashion?
1: You know, fashion is the clearest example of how aesthetics change, that we find a big shouldered suit to be beautiful. And then 10 years later to be embarrassing and status and culture shows the degree to which the social forces that are very unconscious most of the time change how we judge visuals and sound and smells too, you know, thinking about smells, there are definitely things in our body like taste and smell that are determined but culturally, if you live in a culture where things are sweeter, you like sweeter foods. And if you like you live in a culture where people don't eat that much sugar, things can be too sweet. You know, when Krispy Kreme came to Japan, they said Japanese people will never eat this because it's too sweet and Japanese sweets aren't this sweet. Now, of course, Krispy Kreme did really, really well. And so these things are hard to predict. But um I, you know, I just believe that human beings are given these broad, broad palettes of what they could potentially find to be beautiful and then within that things move around all the time and they move around for social reasons and so fashion i think fashion is something that is absolutely dismissed by serious people as being this dumb superficial part of life and actually if you dig into what fashion tells you about humans It tells you one of the most important things about humans, which is that most of our values and most of our practices are contingent and can change. And that human beings come together, they make these group decisions, they have social values, those social values can change over time. And human language and art, cultural practices, those are all based on that principle. And by understanding fashion, you can understand that really, really well because you see it in real time. But because, you know, you know, it's a, a bit of a bias of the kind of people who become academics are very serious thinkers and fashion is a very trivial thing. And so they don't take it seriously where I think it's right out there in front of them that fashion tells you more about humans than maybe even rationality or some of these other principles do. So, uh, you know, there's, there's something deeper about fashion than I think that people realize. And that's another thing I, 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 I do like to talk about.
0: You've worked with several really incredible publications over your career, everything from GQ to Nylon to one of my favorites, Popeye. You know, how did you meet the team over at Popeye? And how has it been, you know, working with the team?
1: Yeah, with Popeye in particular, it's funny because I was, you know, very aware of the magazine through the research I was doing on Bathing Ape for my senior thesis and you know, would look at old issues once in a while when I moved here and they had a moment in the early 2000s that was very focused on kind of European fashion. And I I wasn't as much into that. And then, you know, I was at a party, uh, it's supposed to have been like 2007 or eight or something. And I was just there by myself. I got invited to some United Arrows store launch and I didn't know anyone there. So I'm just standing in the corner. And these two people come up to me, these Japanese guys, and they say, hey, we're looking for models for this photo shoot of people who don't look like models. So you'd be great. It's kind of like both a compliment and an insult. And I said, okay. And so the guy was Kinoshita, who was at Brutus. He was the fashion editor of Brutus. And then the fashion stylist, Akio Hasagawa. And so... You know, from there, I I got to know them and I did this fashion shoot for Brutus. And as I was doing it, I was kind of pitching Kinoshita-san on, hey, actually, I'm a writer and I'd love to write for you. And so they didn't uh, he really wanted to turn Brutus into more of a publication with some text. that wasn't just fashion. So he brought me in on a couple articles. And so I wrote two or three kind of long form pieces for Brutus. And then he was appointed as editor-in-chief of Popeye. And so then he came into Popeye and said, hey, will you come in and you know do some things? And once Amatora came out, he said, oh, let's serialize Amatora in the back pages of, of Popeye, which is you know, a huge honor. And then when they did their Take Ivy issue, I kind of wrote about Take Ivy. And when they did their anniversary issue of Popeye, I think it was the 40th anniversary, I got to write the essay on kind of the impact of Popeye. And so I was writing a bunch for them uh, through that. And then Kinoshi son left and he's now at Fast Retailing, uh, which does Uniqlo. And, uh, you know, the junior editors, I kind of knew there. And so they still, you know, bring me in and interview me on small things. But then I got last year to do, they said, hey, we want to do a story with you that's kind of about style. And I, I really don't like recommending how people should dress uh, because I don't. I don't really believe in some sort of, there's one way people should dress and I have my specific way and it's definitely not the same, shouldn't be the same for other people. And so I said, look, let me let me pitch you on this, which is in writing status and culture, I realized there's all these different pathways to being a great dresser. So let me just pick seven of these strategies. Uh, for example, wearing a uniform and you know, focused on Fran Leibowitz because she uh, is great about wearing the same thing all the time. It looks great and it defines her uh or you know emotion you know so gian de leon uh just like kind of wakes up and thinks about how he feels and dresses that way and so you know thinking about those strategies and so i wrote a pretty that was the longest piece i'd ever done for them that was almost like a you know inside of the magazine it was uh like a book inside of a book uh and that was great but you know i think for these places i i it's been really nice to be able to write what I want to write. I don't just kind of get assigned things, uh, but that that that's a lo- really long process. So that must be you know 15 years of working with um, those people. And you know the the number one secret to all of this for if you're young and aspiring to be uh, you know a writer, or a stylist, or whatever it is, is just you gotta show up to where the people are, and especially the people your age or your scene. And get deep in that scene because so many of the people in that scene will go on to be the leaders uh, of the next generation and they will bring you along uh, for whatever it is that you do. And so, you know, for me, then I think the number one advice is, you know, work on your craft, whatever your craft is, but also you've got to know who everybody is and be there because, you know, you will get you will rise up with them and maybe you'll be the one who rises up and you'll bring everyone else along. But, you know, it's just very hard to get any of these connections based on raw raw talent alone. It's gotta be the talent plus the opportunities and the opportunities you only get from being out there and, and knowing people. And I don't mean, you know, when you say networking, it sounds so crass and cynical like the only reason you're going to meet people is to get these jobs. And what I mean instead is, you know, just like find your people and be in a scene and try to make that scene as as big and vibrant as possible and good things will come. And also to find those mentors and find those people who are a little more established, who are willing to to look at you and say, okay, you've got some raw talent, but you got to do these things as well. Um, I I feel like my career had very few mentors I wish I had more of them um and you know it's a these these things are quite these industries are quite competitive and quite um you know you're not going to get that much help because everybody's scared of their own position being uh thwarted by people younger than them so you've got to find the people who really do you know are kind of more human and want to be caring and and want to be helpful uh they're not there's not many of them but you know try to find them when they're there
0: yeah anything coming out soon that people should be kind of keeping an eye out for
1: the number one thing at the moment is that the new version of amatora comes out in september with a new cover and an afterward um so check that out hoping to get to the u.s to do some promotion for it um Otherwise, yeah, working on a couple of small, small things and trying to get this new book pitched. So it may be somewhat quiet for me. I do have a newsletter uh, called Culture, Colon and uh, Owner's Manual, Culture and Owner's Manual. uh, That's at culture.ghost.io. And uh, if you just want to kind of see what I'm thinking about, uh, I do... I think it's going to be kind of one essay a month and then one roundup of links about how culture is changing. So I kind of read a bunch of other great articles about culture and then, you know, talk about it through the framework of my book. So if you're interested in trying to figure out what culture and fashion,
0: what's happening, check check out my newsletter. Hey, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you if your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge with BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy but with a therapist who is custom picked for you more scheduling flexibility and a more affordable price get 10 off your first month at betterhelp.com fashion collective that's better H-E-L-P dot slash fashion collective.